Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, here in my home studio in Kent. And I'm delighted that our producer, Jim, has been persuaded to come out Mike's side and join me for this special Planet Pod A to Z guide to climate change and the environment. Jim, hi, how are you? Hi, Amanda. I'm very well, thank you very much indeed. And it's great to have the opportunity to, uh, yeah, to participate in this way. Yeah, it's great. It's like old times, isn't it? Only that we're stuck at home, not out visiting some wonderful farm or something. That's right. So how are you coping with lockdown? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. I guess like everybody, we're finding a new way of working and it just, uh, it's, it's slightly surreal still. But yeah, we're, I think we're getting on. Thank you very much indeed. Staying as safe as we can and washing our hands and singing happy birthday twice. <laughs> to everybody, including your grandson. Including my grandson, Arthur, yes, whose birthday, second birthday it was just a couple of days ago. Uh, and we bought him a veg truck, a kid's veg truck, which is a little sort of two foot high veg planter. So he's going to be out in the garden planting all sorts of salad crops and so on. So that'll be fun. Never too young to start. Absolutely not. Uh, so we thought we would do, um, try and give people a bit of an insight into what's happening to climate change and the environment. And, you know, our A to Z is designed to be um, a quick guide, a quick gallop through, because there are far more explanations under every letter than we can possibly accommodate in a Planet Pod episode. So what we've done is we've created a downloadable PDF with lots and lots of explanations and a glossary, which you might find useful for homeschooling if you're homeschooling um, or for the house party pub quiz or for trivial pursuit or whatever it is that you're doing at home. Anyway, hope it's helpful and we hope you enjoy it. So here we go. The Planet Pod A to Z Guide to Climate Change and the Environment. Jim, over to you. Well, A is for Anthropocene. Uh, since the last ice age, that's about 11,500 years ago, the Earth's been in the Holocene epoch. However, human life is now having such a significant impact on the planet that we're now entering what's called the Anthropocene age. It's a new geological epoch. And while it's still a matter of debate amongst some scientists, there's no arguing with the fact that humans have become the single most influential species on the planet causing significant global warming and other changes to the land, to the environment, to water, to organisms in the atmosphere, the so-called anthropogenic or human-made changes. Um, the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Modern humans have only been around for a mere 200,000 years. But in that time, we've fundamentally altered the physical, the chemical, the biological systems of the planet on which we and all other organisms depend, and that we've had a lasting and potentially irreversible influence on Earth's systems, the environment, and, and all the processes and biodiversity. So it also links to another A, acceleration. That during the last 60 years, these human impacts have unfolded at an unprecedented rate uh, and, a, and a scale which has led scientists to coin the term the Great Acceleration. The word Anthropocene comes from the Greek term for human, anthropo, uh, and new, scene, but its definition is controversial. So it was coined in the 1980s, uh, then popularized in 2000 by atmospheric chemist Paul Crutzen and diatom researcher Eugene Sturmer. So they are pod listeners. A is for Anthropocene. It's a great idea, isn't it, that we're in a new epoch, but it's sadly one in which we are causing immense damage and um, harm to our planet. And you mentioned biodiversity, which is interesting, because B, our B is for biodiversity, 
which is the technical term for all of life on Earth. It's a scientific measure of the variety of species, habitats and ecosystems across the whole planet. Biodiversity and a healthy biodiversity is essential for human existence, um, as well as underpinning the food and the food we eat and the air we breathe. We depend on it for protection from other threats like pollution, flooding and climate change, climate breakdown. Um, Biodiversity includes not just the um, species that we know and love, so all kind of mammals definitely, but all of the insects and of course all the millions of species that we never really encounter because they're in parts of the world that we never go to, such as the Amazon rainforest. A report that came out in 2019 from the snappily titled Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, otherwise known as IPBES, presented us with some stark evidence that without significant changes in our behaviour, we're likely to lose one million species from the planet in the near future. And a loss of that kind will certainly make life unsustainable in certain areas. So that IPBES report assessed all the changes in biodiversity over the past five decades, and it really shows the rate of extinction accelerating hundreds of times faster than usual. So that, you know, looking after the biodiversity and the variety of the countryside is absolutely vital. Absolutely. No. C is for lots of things, but climate emergency, let's start there. Uh, there's something more and more individuals, organisations, local and national governments are now acknowledging and realising that decisive action is really needed now to prevent catastrophic global heating. Uh, C is also for carbon. Uh, quite a few of these ones, so I'm just going to pick a few of them out. Carbon sequestration, let's start there, which is the process of storing carbon dioxide. It can happen naturally, uh, so it's in growing trees and plants, which turn CO2 into biomass, things like wood, leaves, and so on. But it can also refer to the capture and storage of carbon dioxide produced by industry, and that's where CO2 is captured from large emitters like power plants um, and permanently stored in deep underground reservoirs. And we Sometimes we call this geological sequestration. And trees and other plants also lock up carbon as they grow, which is another form of sequestration. Uh, and we sometimes refer to these as carbon sinks, which are really any process or activity or mechanism uh, that re removes carbon from the atmosphere. So the biggest carbon sinks in the world uh, are the world's oceans and forests, which absorb huge amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Another C, carbon neutral, a process uh, where there's no net release of carbon dioxide. For example, growing biomass, which takes CO2 out of the atmosphere, while burning it releases the gas again. The process would be carbon neutral if the amount taken out and the amount released were identical. A company or a country can also achieve carbon neutrality by means of carbon offsetting, which is a way of compensating for the emissions of carbon dioxide by participating in or funding efforts to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. Offsetting often involves paying another party somewhere else to save emissions equivalent to those produced by your activity. So those are some C's. And it's really interesting you mentioned carbon offsetting because a lot of people think that that's uh, almost like a get out of jail card free, isn't it? So you can use as much carbon as you like, but as long as you plant some trees and offset, you're okay. But actually it takes ages for those trees to absorb the carbon, doesn't it, Jim? And it takes a very long time for a forest to grow. So, so you'd have to plant a huge number of trees in order to offset the kind of carbon that most of us are emitting on a regular basis. That's right. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with the idea of planting trees if you are realistic about just how much carbon it's really going to take out in the atmosphere. And, and of course, trees are a great way of, of providing biodiversity. Uh, you know, they're great community values. We love walking amongst trees and it's a good thing to do. So uh, not a bad thing to do, but just be wary of saying that that's the, that's the, the solution to carbon offsetting. Yeah, it's part of the solution, isn't it? We're on to D. D is for 
Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth, which is one of my favorites. And this is the call to action that came from the World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth in Bolivia back in April 2010. And it called on the peoples, all peoples, to recognize that we are all part of Mother Earth, an indivisible living community of interrelated and interdependent beings with a common destiny. Um, that convention called on the UN to adopt um, the rights of uh, Mother Earth as part of a UN um, declaration. As yet, they haven't done that. And there is a petition out there, and we'd urge you to sign it. It's at www.rightsofmotherearth, which asks the UN to adopt this as an international declaration. However, in the meantime, we can all celebrate Mother Earth through Mother Earth Day, which we now know better as Earth Day. And this year it's on the 22nd of April. Um, so if you're not doing anything on the 22nd of April, you might be at home still. Let's hope not, but you may well be. Um, try and celebrate Earth Day in your own way. What the declaration has done is it's led to lots of countries taking up the rights of the Earth's natural entities, such as mountains and rivers and lakes, and giving them a personality in law through something known as Earth's jurisprudence um, and we actually had a whole podcast about that I don't know if you remember Jim but we went down to Bristol we interviewed some international lawyers from UKLA um, as part of our how wild is our law series um, for, for planet pod so if you haven't heard that episode do listen in and what's really interesting is we've actually got an example of earth's jurisprudence here in the UK um, we haven't been successful so far but the um, there's a group down in Somerset who are campaigning for the rights of the River Froome to try and make the River Froome have its own legal rights and they're now at the point of taking their case to the appeal court in London. Um, so Earth's jurisprudence is here on our own doorstep. And didn't you spend some time in the middle of the River Froome doing some filming Amanda? I did recently. I was really lucky to be part of the Bar Council, um, which is the overseeing body for, for, for the law courts and for barristers um, and for the law, who are making who made a film about Earth's other super, the superpower of the law to support um, the Earth and the climate. Um, and we made a film all about that. And we were actually in the River Room. I stood on the bank, though. I'm lucky to say I didn't actually have to stand up to my knees in freezing cold water in February. Um, so if you're interested in that, check out the Bar Council website. Brilliant. And another D, uh, divestment. Uh, which is the opposite of, of investment. And it just simply means getting rid of stocks or bonds or investment funds that are unethical or morally ambiguous. And it's something that more and more people are, are looking to do. Uh, so fossil fuel divestment particularly is all about immediately freezing any new investment in fossil fuel companies. About, it's about divesting from direct ownership uh, and any commingled funds that include fossil fuel public equities and corporate bonds within five years. Uh, and it also means ending fossil fuel sponsorship. So uh, that's something which I think more and more people are beginning to, to take seriously. Yeah, and that affects all of us, even if you may not personally have stocks and bonds, which I guess quite a lot of us don't. Um, your pe if you have a pension, your pension will be invested in the stock market. And a lot of those pension firms are now looking at divesting from um, unethical and, as you say, fossil fuel based investments. So um, if you're interested in lobbying your pension uh, provider, just asking them where your money is being invested, um, try and get them to divest. And it's certainly something I know university students are very excited about and have been campaigning for for quite a long time to encourage their universities to disinvest from unethical funds. That brings us on to E. Jim, E, e is for? E is for emission gap. Uh, and that's the gap between the carbon dioxide, which would be in the atmosphere by the end of the century if we did nothing, uh, which would result in a, a catastrophic t uh, rise in temperature between four and six degrees centigrade, uh, and how much we need to reduce that by to limit temperatures rise to below two degrees centigrade, ideally to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Uh, and in total, that's about a trillion tons of carbon. 
National governments have pledged through the Plant Paris Agreement in 2015 to reduce this gap, but there's still an awful lot that businesses and individuals need to do to cut greenhouse gas emissions to reduce that gap. And another E, uh, which is slightly different, but uh, is Formula E, and it maybe could come under an F as well, but Formula E, which is an exciting, uh, but possibly less well-known form of motorsport, which uses electric race vehicles and city circuits. Uh, Formula E is, has it's got all the thrills and spills of Formula One, uh, if you like Formula One, but it's got with, without the carbon footprint of the vehicles. Uh, and it's a really great proving ground for innovative uh, EV technology. So it's certainly worth uh, worth tuning into as and when Formula E gets back up and running again. And even if you're not interested in motor racing, and I have to put my hand up here because I'm not particularly, um, what's happening at, with Formula E is the, the level of investment and the interest from the, the racing and petrolhead community um, is actually driving some of those changes down through the supply chain. So what's happening at Formula E is the battery technology is getting better and better. And I think they can now do a race on one car instead of on two, can't they? Because they don't need two batteries. But that technology then makes its way through into other parts of the automotive industry and ultimately through into what would be another E, which would be electric cars or electric vehicles that we can purchase as domestic consumers. So, so as well as being um, super fast, it also has a benefit for, for motor manufacturing elsewhere, doesn't it? Indeed. F is for feedback loop. And the feed, this is quite complicated. And I have to say, I didn't know about this until Jim shared it with me. So a feedback loop is um, the rising temperatures of the earth change the environment in ways that affect the rate of warming. And feedback loops can be positive, so they can add to the rate of warming, or negative, reducing it. The melting of Arctic ice provides an example of a positive feedback process. As the ice on the surface of the Arctic Ocean melts away, there is a smaller area of white ice to affect the sun's heat back into space and more open dark water to absorb it. So the, obviously the temperature of the water rises. The less ice there is, the more water heats up and the faster the remaining ice melts. So that's a neg in a way, I mean, you say it's a positive feedback loop because it's positive in terms of the warming, but actually in terms of the effect on the planet, it's negative really, isn't it? I and mean, that's, that's a terrible thing to be happening. Um, so there we are. F is for feedback loop. And we move on to G. G is for greenhouse gases. That's the first one we're going to choose. And greenhouse gases, these are the natural and the industrial gases that trap heat from the earth and, and warm the surface. And that's what causes global heating. Uh, and there are six main greenhouse gases. So we've got carbon dioxide or CO2, we have nitrous oxide and methane. And those all occur naturally as well as from some industrial processes. And then we've got the ones which are purely industrial sources. So they're perfluorocarbons, hydrofluorocarbons and sulfur hexafluoride, all sort of quite uh, open universe university uh, technical um, chemical terms there but they're used in things like refrigerants and electrical circuits in relatively small quantities but they have an enormous global warming potential uh, which is our next g so global warming potential that's the measure of a greenhouse gas's ability to absorb heat and to warm the atmosphere over a given time period and it's measured relative to a similar mass of carbon dioxide uh, which we say has a global warming potential of one so for example methane uh, has a global warming potential of 25 over a 100-year period, uh, which is the metric used in the Kyoto Protocol, and we'll talk about that later on. It's important to know the timescale because gases are removed from the atmosphere at different rates. So we talk about global warming potential as a really important aspect of, of understanding climate change. So that's a kind of baseline measure, isn't it? And um, didn't you have a very damaging 
gas in your eye recently, Jim. I did, actually. I had, I had some sulfur hexafluoride. Uh, it's used in medical operations for, it, particularly in my case, it was for to, to prevent a, a detached retina or to, put, to make sure the retina doesn't further detach. They so put a little gas bubble in your eye. It's a tiny, tiny amount, um, but it has a massive global warming potential. So I was really concerned that I was a walking climate change causer as I was walking around. But um, as I said, it's a, it's a tiny amount. But it's, these things have to be taken seriously because if they get out in the atmosphere and they leak, particularly if refrigerants leak, then they can cause big problems. Yeah, and of course we all have refrigerants because we all have refrigerators. We've got another G, which we're just going to slip in, which of course is G is for Greta. And we need to say nothing else about Greta because she's like one of, she's so famous now. She's like Delia. You only ever use her first name. So G is for Greta. It brings us on to H, and H is for heating, as in global heating. Um, and this is a bit like climate emergency. The narrative has shifted from climate change to climate emergency, and the, the terminology has shifted from global warming to global heating because it's much more accurate. Um, and it represents the changes taking place to the world's climate, particularly amid the growing evidence that rising temperatures have passed the comfort zone and are now bringing increased threats to humanity. Um, Professor Richard Betts, who leads climate research um, at the UK Met Office, um, which is the Britain's meteorological monitoring organisation, for those who don't know, but I'm sure you do, told the recent UN Climate Summit um, in Poland that global heating is technically more correct because we're talking about changes in the energy balance of the planet. We should be talking about risk rather than uncertainty. And I also think that in, a, in, in just in a ter as a term, heating is decidedly more uncomfortable than warming. Warming has a kind of cosy, cuddly, getting home, warming up, snuggling down by a fire or with a nice cup of cocoa. Heating is something you do when you're not comfortable. So global heating, um, H is for heating. I is for IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a scientific body which is established by the United Nations Environment Programme uh, and the World Meteorological Organization. And it comprises thousands of scientists, each of whom peer review uh, and assess the most recent scientific, technical and socio-economic work relevant to climate change, hugely important. Uh, and the IPCC brings out an assessment report every few years um, and an occasional special report. And the last special report warned of the need to restrict global temperatures rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade so previously we were talking about two degrees uh, and now we're saying actually 1.5 degrees is what, what we need to really limit it to um, and that's above pre-industrial levels too in order to be able to avoid really serious consequences of global heating so IPCC hugely important body. J is for justice as in climate justice and justice is concerned as we know with ensuring that people get what is due to them setting out moral or legal principles of fairness and equity in the way that people are treated treated often based on the ethics and values of our society climate justice links development and human rights to achieve a human-centered approach to addressing climate change safeguarding the rights of the most vulnerable people and sharing the burdens and benefits of climate change and its impacts equitably and fairly this definition builds upon the one used by mary robinson in the mary robinson foundation of climate justice um, and i have to say that the for me the issue of climate justice is really closely linked to 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 gender and and gender inequality and gender justice and, and that was certainly the theme of this year's women of the world festival um, at climate justice is gender justice because disproportionately climate um, change and cli the climate emergency is impacting both the world's most impoverished but also women and they are likely to suffer the burdens of climate change far more um, than, than men.
Sorry about that, Jim. Not having a go at the blokes. Um, but anyway, J is for justice. Absolutely. And I mean, the sad thing is that, that uh, it's the people who can do, potentially can do less about um, the, the, what's happening with climate change uh, that are going to suffer most, particularly if we're talking about some of the poorer and, and, more, and the developing uh, nations of the world as well. So K. K is for Kyoto Protocol. Now, we mentioned this earlier on, but Kyoto Protocol is a legally binding set of commitments which was made back in 1997 uh, under the auspices of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in Kyoto in Japan. Uh, all the national governments uh, signed up to it, and it was all about limiting greenhouse gas emissions. And you remember, those are the gases like carbon dioxide, methane, which cause warming of the Earth's atmosphere. So the Kyoto Protocol was a hugely important milestone uh, in world governments tackling climate change. L. I've got three L's, so I'll be quick. L is for low energy. So things like um, LED light bulbs. If you haven't changed your light bulbs yet, when they, when they wear out, consider buying an LED light bulb because they last a lot longer and they reduce your energy bill significantly. And for those of us who are now spending a lot more time at home, working at home at a desk, you'll notice your energy bills will be going up. My other L is for local. Another aspect of some of some our changing behaviours is that we're having to do things much more locally. We're not able to travel. So we're looking at local traders um, and that's good because that cuts carbon and food miles. Now often shopping locally isn't accessible for a lot of people and people usually rely on markets and outdoor markets, which of course we can't have at the moment. But when and hopefully if things get to some, back to normal, consider shopping locally and using local suppliers. And my other L is for little changes, because little changes have a significant impact if we all do them together. So it doesn't matter what you're doing, but try and change some of your habits if you're home-based at the moment to see if you can reduce your carbon impact. Brilliant. We've moved on to M now. M is for mitigation. Uh, this is the action that will reduce man-made climate change, and it includes action to reduce greenhouse gases, uh, gas emissions, or absorb greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And mitigation is really what we can do to prevent or limit, limit global heating. It's often spoken about alongside adaptation, uh, what we need to adapt to and be able to live in a warmer world. So mitigation is, is something which is it's obviously hugely important. Um, and if you're a cryptic crossword doer, uh, you just change some of the words around and you get migration. Uh, migration is really important uh, because as, well, as parts of the world become less habitable uh, due to increased drought, for example, uh, we're likely to see mass migration to more comfortable parts of the world causing severe strain on resources. So it's something which is happening already and it happens for all sorts of reasons, but I think increasing climate worsening climate change and increasing extremes of weather is going to cause more and more migration. Yeah, and, and of course, climate migration will result in huge populations in refugee camps because they won't necessarily be accepted into the countries that they're migrating to. Um, and we've got a fascinating pod coming up shortly, which is all about how you provide sustainable alternative sources of energy in refugee situations. So listen out for that one because it's going to be really interesting. That brings us on to N. And I've got two Ns, but one is for natural greenhouse effect. And we've talked about uh, greenhouse gases and we've talked about global heating. We've talked about the man-made carbon that goes into the atmosphere and the raising of the Earth's temperature. But there is a natural level of greenhouse gas just in the atmosphere anyway, which keeps the planet about 30 degrees warmer than it would otherwise be um, essential for life as we know it. So it's a positive um, um, greenhouse gas. And water vapour is the most important component of the natural greenhouse effect. N is also for nature. <clears throat> Just going to tuck that one in quickly because something that lots of us have now are having more of a chance to observe is it's actually on our doorstep. And that's whether we live in a town or a city or a countryside. 
um, reduction in travel and pollution is already having an impact, positive impact on the planet. Um, and it's giving uh, nature a chance to recolonize and come back. Um, in the UK, we're seeing birds, small mammals and plants springing up all over the place. <clears throat> I've noticed the stars are much brighter and clearer. I don't know if you have, Jim. I guess that's because of reduction in light pollution and also general pollution. And I saw a report recently saying that in Italy, wild boar have been spotted in towns, roaming with their litters of stripy piglets behind them. Possibly slightly more intimidating than the squirrels I'm seeing in my garden. <laughs> But it's a great opportunity, I guess, for all of us if we are able to get out at all. And even if we can't get out, there's there's an opportunity to perhaps to at least look out our window and enjoy nature as best we can. So we move on to O. O is for oceans, uh, hugely important. Uh, and we've got a podcast coming up shortly exploring the whole subject of oceans. But one of the important aspects to highlight is ocean acidification. Uh, we know that the ocean absorbs about a fourth of man-made carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And obviously that helps to reduce adverse climate change effects. So it's, it's a mitigating effect. But when the carbon dioxide dissolves in seawater, you get carbonic acid. Um, carbon emissions in the industrial era have already lowered the pH of seawater by about 0.1 measure, which is, is, is significant. In other words, making it more acidic. So ocean acidification can decrease the ability of marine organisms to build their shells and skeletal structures and kill off coral reefs, which, all of which has really serious effects on people who rely on them. So it has a major effect on marine e ecosystems and, um, and what we take from the, from the oceans. So really important. Yeah. Sorry, guys, if this is all a bit technical, but we wanted to give you um, some of the less usual A to Zs um, because we all know perhaps some of the more obvious ones. And so under P, I've got lots, but I've just picked one. And P is for parts per million. And this is usually abbreviated to PPM or PPMV, which stands for parts per million by volume. And this is the measure for the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And we refer to PPM level of carbon dioxide equivalent or CO2E, which is the concentration of all the greenhouse gases related to carbon. The IPCC, which we've already mentioned, suggested in 2007 that the world should aim to stabilise those greenhouse gas levels at 450 parts per million of CO2 equivalent in order to avert dangerous climate change. Scientists and many of the countries most vulnerable to climate change argue that the safe limit is actually 350 parts per million. The current levels of CO2 are around 414 parts per million, and that's four parts per million higher than the same time last year, and it's continuing to go up. So we're on the wrong trajectory. Whatever we're doing about carbon offsetting, it's not enough. Ah, Jim. Well, I'm going to leap in because I want to mention another P, which is the Pliocene era. Oh, this um, is just a plug. P is for plug here. Come on. The P is for plug. But we've also we've already mentioned the Anthropocene and the Holocene. So let's mention the Pliocene era. This is a period in the Earth's history which was uh, between 5.3 million and 2.6 million years ago. And it was the reason why it's important is because it's the last time that the concentration of carbon dioxide, which you've just talked about, Amanda, the PPMs, uh, was around 400 parts per million for a long period and it can really teach us an awful lot about what conditions on the planet could be like if we stay at those sort of levels now. Um, so we can learn a lot from from ice core samples and we've got a really exciting Planet Pod uh, Grantham Institute podcast coming up with, soon with Professor Martin Seagut. Uh, so listen to that and you can hear all about the Pliocene era. P is for plug because that's one that Jim's hosting. <laughs> Come on let's move on. R is for 
R is for renewables and rewilding. So to decarbonize our electricity supply, we really do need to source our energy from renewables like solar, from wind, hydroelectric, biomass, those sorts of things. Uh, and to ensure we maintain the health of the soil for future crops and to preserve biodiversity, we also need to rewild uh, areas which are gradually becoming infertile and unproductive. And we've got several podcasts already on both of those subjects with more to come. So do have a listen. Renewables, rewilding, two very important R's. Yeah, and we are actually doing quite well on renewables, aren't we? Because the number of days that we've had in the last year <coughs> where we've been coal-free and we haven't been reliant on fossil fuels for creating energy has increased significantly. Um, so we're making progress on renewables. It's a good thing. A quick S, S is for sustainability, and it doesn't really need an explanation, but it's about being able to live within our means, I think is our best way of describing it, and meet the needs of today without screwing things up for future generations. So trying to think sustainably that shopping locally, um, developing good habits around recycling, possibly not buying as much stuff. So maybe bringing less into the system so you don't have to dispose of some, some things, thinking more about the circular economy, sustainable living, living within the, the earth's resources really. Absolutely. And the T's that we've chosen are tipping point, uh, which is the threshold for change, which if we reach it, results in a process that's really you know, it can't be reversed. Uh, and scientists are saying that it's urgent that policymakers halve the global carbon dioxide emissions over the next 50 years or, or risk triggering changes that could be irreversible. So we'll reach a tipping point if we can't do that. Uh, and T is also related to that. T is for 10 years. And that's how long we've got to sort all this out. So, you know, we've all got to take action and we've got to take it now, whether we're individuals or businesses. Yeah, 2010 to 2030 is the decade of action. U is for another set of initials, the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework for the Convention on Climate Change. And this is one of a series of international agreements on global environmental issues adopted um, at the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. The UNFCCC aims to prevent dangerous human interference with the climate system and it entered into force on the 21st of March 1994 and has been ratified by 192 countries. And it's that which underpins all of the other actions and global actions the countries sign up to around climate change. Um, and it's really important. So we have a huge amount to thank the UN for. Um, what an extraordinary organisation and thank goodness it's there. Um, and I think one thing that we've all learned from COVID is that we are a very tiny planet and we're all really interconnected and we have to work together so thank goodness we've got the UN keeping a guiding hand on us all. Absolutely. B is for vegetarian and vegan uh, which are both lifestyle choices which I think many more people are now taking up and which can really help reduce your own your, your personal carbon footprint and help you to eat, eat more healthily. Uh, about a quarter of global carbon dioxide emissions come from food uh, and over half of those come from animal products. And if you look at beef and lamb, they're the major contributors. So if you can avoid meat and dairy products is one of the biggest ways which you can reduce your environmental impact, uh, according to recent scientific studies. So switching to a plant-based diet can help fight climate change, according to the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, we mentioned earlier, uh, which says that the West's high consumption of meat and dairy is fueling global warming. So there's an opportunity if we want to do something about it to consider going to a vegan or a vegetarian diet. Yeah, and if you can't do it all the time, you can be a flexitarian and do it some of the time. And Lord Gummer, who's 
infamous for feeding a beef burger to his own child on national television during the BSE outbreak, actually was on the radio recently saying, we just need to reduce our meat consumption by 20%. If we all did that, that would be enough. We don't all have to go vegetarian or vegan. And we have to remember, as a shout out to some of our previous pod guests, that some forms of dairy and meat production are actually quite sustainable. Um, Of course, they're much more expensive because if you're growing cattle very slowly over a long period of time, like they do at the Hampton Estate, and they're able to roam free and they have a natural carbon sink in the water meadows in which they graze, then they will have a smaller carbon impact. But of course, they have a much higher price tag. Um, So one of the great benefits of vegetarian and vegan is that vegetables on the whole tend to be very cheap. And you can grow them in your back garden, whereas you can't always grow your own cow. W is for waste, uh, waste or living waste free. Um, and which is all about trying to do what we can to avoid waste in the first place. So things like you reusing uh, shopping bags or using reusable shopping bags, avoiding unnecessary packaging, reusing or repurposing something rather than throwing it away, recycling wherever possible. But so it's about breaking out of this sort of linear take, make, waste, uh, use waste type of way of thinking uh, to shifting to what we call a circular economy model where waste is seen as a really valuable resource and then it can be reused or recycled if we can't avoid it. So waste or trying to be waste free. Um, I get X and Y. X is for, you guessed it, Extinction Rebellion. Um, We all know and love Extinction Rebellion. Um, Well, some of us don't love them, but we all know them. Um, And they're an important mass protest movement. And they've had a dramatic impact on the climate change debate. And they've raised this as an issue. And I know they annoy some people and their tactics are quite um, extreme at times, but they have made people sit up and take notice. And they've been listening to what they say. We had um, a fantastic podcast with the founders of Extinction Rebellion, with Gail and Roger in a very noisy pub about 18 months ago, nearly two years ago now. Um, So if you haven't heard it, you must, it's great. Um, And X is also for extreme weather patterns. Ouch, can I get away with that? But we are seeing- Just about. We are seeing much more impact of climate on our direct domestic weather, witness floods, which have a dramatic impact on people's lives. Um, And my heart goes out to the people who were flooded out earlier this year because they've suddenly come off the news agenda, but their problems haven't gone away. Um, So being in lockdown in a flooded area can't be much fun. And why is for the youth justice movement, started by Greta, of course, but now a global movement of young people who are committed to making their voices heard and holding our generation to account for the impact of climate change. And I think that galvanising of students, young people has been enormously encouraging and has certainly inspired lots and lots of adults to actually take part. So whether you're a parent yourself and you've been involved in the youth climate strike movement or the Friday strikes, school strikes, or whether you've just been inspired seeing young people doing something positive and creative and standing up for what they believe in. um, I think we have to applaud young people for doing that. They get a rough ride and they get a lot of stick, um, our current generation of snowflakes, and they don't deserve it because they are unique and special. And that brings us to Zed. And Zed is for zero, as in net zero. And that's where we achieve an overall balance between the emissions we produced and the emissions we take out of the atmosphere. And Jim has this great analogy. Um, He says it's like a bath where you turn the taps on um, and an approach to achieving balance can be either to turn down the taps, the emissions, or to drain an equal amount out of the plug, remove the emissions from the atmosphere using things such as carbon sinks that we talked about. We need to aim for a net zero economy. And in June of last year, the UK became the first 
first major Western economy in the world to pass laws to end its contribution to global warming by 2050. The target will require all of us in the UK to bring greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050, compared with a previous target of 80% reduction, which was set in the 1990s. Um, we've got a whole series on net zero, as you know, with the Grantham Institute. So if you're at home with nothing to do, or you get a chance to go out and walk the dog and you want a bit of company, listen to the Planet Pod Net Zero series with the Grantham Institute. We've got some great um, academics and professors. And that's it. But as I said, there's dozens more. And if you wish to, you can visit theplanetpod.com and download the full A to Z glossary and guide to climate change and the environment. We would love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at planet underscore pod or on Instagram, and you can get in touch via the website where you can download previous episodes and subscribe. You can find Planet Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or all good podcast providers. Please give us a rating if you get a chance, because it really helps us. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much. It's been great, Amanda. Yeah, it's been really good having you, Mike, side. Um, <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for listening to Planet Pod. Stay well, stay safe. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>